0: Warning: Sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. All around me are familiar faces. Welcome. My name is Crystal, and this is the first episode of Defining Deviant podcast. So the website, definingdeviant.com, outlines the different topics I'll be covering within the podcast, so I won't cover it today, but there is going to be the first sort of meet and greet for a handful of people that are interested on May 15th, so you can go see that on the website. In terms of starting for this episode, I really wanted to outline who I am and what my background is in terms of you understanding why I'm coming to you with this information. I have defended my dissertation now, I did that last September, Uh, remotely, joyful, (laughs) but I have since been sort of working on research and waiting to go on my clinical residency, which will be the final step of my PhD, before I get licensed as a clinical psychologist. My area of focus for research particularly has really been in the area of sexuality and sexual offending. And then my clinical interests are quite wide-ranging, but I do focus somewhat in forensics, so that intersection between psychology and the law. A lot of what I'll be focusing on in this podcast will be around those sorts of topics, whether it's human sexuality, sexual crimes, case studies, or the research that we talk about. It's really going to be focused on those topics of sexual behaviors or sexual crimes. It is important to note if you're going to be tuning in for this podcast. I'm going to have like a regular warning on there for sexual violence, but depending on the episode it's going to vary. I will be putting those sorts of tags in there that I used on the website so you can check if you want to see that episode or not. If it's hashtagged with sexual crimes and you know that's something that's going to bother you, then you don't sort of tag out for that episode. The format of this podcast is going to be something I'm discovering as I go, to be completely honest. I didn't really have plans to start a podcast. Really missed teaching at the university as I've, I've taught a course based on this material and based on human sexuality uh, several times in the last three years. I've really been missing that teaching component to my life and thought this would be a really lovely way to uh, get that aspect out there. I'm also obviously really interested in getting accurate um, and evidence-based information out there about sexual crimes and sexual behavior Because something of what we'll talk about in this podcast is that a lot of sexuality, a lot of crime-based behaviors, there's a lot of stigma associated with them. In this podcast, we're going to be doing a lot of unraveling and critical thinking about things that sometimes don't have easy answers. These are just ways for me to let you know some of the stuff that we'll be talking about in case it makes you uncomfortable. I'll try to be really, really clear in those episodes about what we'll be talking about so that um, individual listeners can make a decision if it's the best choice for them. I uh, obviously will be getting into sexuality, sexual crimes, but I do think it's important that uh, we take a step back and consider history. When we're talking about sexuality and sexual crime in particular, it's really important to recognize that there are cultural shifts over time in almost all areas of the globe. To really understand how we actually got to where we are today, it's really important to understand what happened in the past. So when we're talking about sexuality in particular, we can see very clearly that there's been a massive evolution over time in terms of what sexual expression has been and what is acceptable to society. And even nowadays in 2021, we can see that um, different forms of sexual expression or gender expression or various forms of identity are acceptable in some societies and not acceptable in others. However, regardless of the culture that you're in, there is typically stigma associated with certain forms of expression. Some of what I'll be challenging people to do in this podcast is to be challenging their views of what normal sex is. So, when we talk about the idea of normal sex, you're going to learn, you know, there's not really there's not a clear understanding of what normal would be time frame that we're growing up in, the culture that we were brought up in. Those things are really going to influence the choices that we make, including sexually. It's important to acknowledge that as we're going through these things and talking about history some things will seem really obscure, really, you know, out of date, very different from what we do today, but it is important to acknowledge that once upon a time those things were viewed as normal. The version or the definition of normal as we know it today is not necessarily the definition that it was then. We may view something as abnormal and deviant now that was once commonly accepted or celebrated, and when we look at that it it looks really odd to us and we can't understand that. We have to understand the intersection between time and culture and cohorts and all those things that play into sexuality when we're talking about it. If we look back to really old times, look at the background of Judaism, Um, It's a religious culture that spans over 4,000 years, so we know that um, individuals of this culture have been and continue to be persecuted by other cultures due to their religious beliefs. But if we kind of jump back in history, and I will be providing citations for all the information that I talk about variously for people that are interested. With regards to sexual behavior, this belief really focused on procreation as the reason for engaging in sex things like masturbation, celibacy, homosexuality were all prohibited because they did not result in procreation. If we're looking at this framework when we come to sexuality, this essentially meant that sex should be taking place within the confines of marriage. If we think about gender interactions there, then the husband was considered to essentially have exclusive rights to the sexual and reproductive assets of his wife. There's a sense of that ownership there. So polygyny was acceptable, and the definition of polygyny is essentially that a husband could have more than one wife, but the reverse was not true, and that's called polyandry. That would be the wife having more than one husband, so that was not acceptable at that time. If we look at this sort of cultural background overall, this is patriarchal in nature. This idea that women were meant to be wives and mothers were really the root of those foundations, and the families are very male-dominated. And we still saw a man at that point in time carrying on the family name and inheriting any family wealth. That's sort of a really, really far background look at sex when we're talking about early culture and religious culture. If we look at some specific societies, we can understand some things that have become relevant today and some things that we have different understandings of. Ancient Greece really took a, what we would call, realistic view of sexuality and focused on aesthetic beauty. If you look back on the time of Ancient Greece, you see a lot of statues, you see a lot of sensuality, and a lot of this was based on their ideals of the Greek gods. Greek gods were shown to really enjoy sexual relations um, with each other, they masturbated, Uh, they also had sex with humans if they could, and sex was not necessarily something that was just used for procreation among the gods it was also used as something that was recreational. It became something that was for fun and also for pleasure. So we saw some uh, dual purposes for sex develop at that point. If we look to Greek society and we look to specific behaviors um, at that point, ancient Greece, homosexual behavior was very prevalent and actually institutionalized in Greek society. It was a very common part of their culture males were thought to be bisexual, whereas there was more issues that occurred when someone would focus exclusively on homosexual behaviors, and then that is seen as abnormal. Really important to note here, and something that's going to come up in later times, is that in ancient Greece there was a term called pederasty. This essentially stands for boy love. And this was integrated into their system, essentially, where adult males would have a form of mentorship, is the way that they framed it, with younger adolescent males. And essentially, they would have sexual relationships with those males until post-puberty, and then that relationship would end. So this was seen as a form of mentorship with a sexual component. At that time, again, which some individuals would call pedophilic behavior, These behaviors were prevalent and quite accepted at this time. Again, this focus on sort of uh, male as the main figure and women as wives and uh, mothers still, we know that ancient Greece was still quite a patriarchal society. We take a look at ancient Rome. Hedonism was a basic concept within Roman culture. Hedonism is really about the pursuit of pleasure what you do comes down to wanting it to be pleasurable. So live fully today because you really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And we also see a shift here in ancient Rome that unlike what we saw in ancient Greece with that focus on beauty and aesthetics, you know, those those statues, we see a focus on really rough and physical in the culture. So we see a lot more rough and physical characteristics. Roman culture allowed for more of an active participation of women specifically in sexual interactions. So within Roman culture women didn't have to be passive participants within sexual interactions. And let's be clear that although that was the case, the culture was still patriarchal overall but sex was something that could be used recreationally and women could engage more actively in than we saw in previous cultures. Sex became something that was viewed normally and a physical activity to be enjoyed. Even if we just look through these first three sort of cultural overviews, we can see shifts that happen within society. We have, you know, this sort of romanticism, and then we have more rough periods, and then we have periods where there's a really kind of strict lockdown on sexuality. And these are some themes that are going to come up in the cultures we continue to talk about. Something to note of interest to sexual crimes in the later Roman Empire is that we did see quite a rise in sadistic tendencies becoming visible during events. This would often happen in combat and games and these activities would often actually have an element of sexual activity. We saw some very sadistic activities during this, so things such as couples being forced to perform sexual acts before the spectators, women were allowed to be raped by animals, and spectators often engaged in sexual activity during these events. So they would be essentially watching the sexual activities going on and engaging in sexual activities themselves. Again, this is that theme of very rough and physical that we saw in this time period of ancient Rome. We jump to the idea of Christianity and Christianity culture and how those ideals started to form within sexuality. We know that Christianity gained power in Rome around 313 AD. This really went on to become the dominant spiritual, intellectual and political force in the West and has been for essentially the next 20 centuries. We look at kind of traditional Christianity, celibacy is the preferred option, but if that can't be achieved, then sex within marriage is the next best option. Essentially, the big focus of this is that Jesus was born without sexual activities and refused to marry so the idea that the purest men will not marry and they can maintain this sexual chaste and monogamy is required within a marriage so unlike some of the previous um, aspects we were talking about you can't have multiple wives or multiple husbands within Christianity it's really based on monogamy and the root of the family Again, we see here that sex is for procreation within Christianity. If you're taking it from the strict Bible version, it's not something that's for pleasure. And there has been oftentimes a repressive stance taken towards sex and sexuality, particularly outside of marriage. A lot of these attitudes remain today, and sex is often viewed as something that should happen within the view of a positive emotional relationship. It's not necessarily as strict as it has been in the past, but there are sort of some areas or some forms of Christianity that do indicate that homosexuality is considered sinful by them. There are some areas that have very negative attitudes towards women, misogyny really based in those beliefs. And of course, if you look to the original Bible, Eve was the original source of evil and sin. So we see that theme that women began, the original sin. Sexual acts themselves became deemed sins against uh, your natural and church law. So this may be things like masturbation um, or having sex with your spouse on holy days. In line with this idea of procreation in Christianity, we see things like homosexuality, birth control, and abortion all being considered sinful. There were many other things that were examples of sins back then that I I brought and I would love to uh, give. But if you look them up, there are things like uh, it was sinful for a married couple to have sex after the wife had passed her childbearing age. So essentially, once she went through menopause, they couldn't have sex. And because women were believed to be made for men, they were seen as inferior. So we see this patriarchal society. During the Middle Ages, uh, the church really gained immense power over marriage and family. For example, newlyweds had to pay a fee if they had sex on their wedding night. And they could also not attend church unless it was 30 days past their wedding, because that was assuming that they'd had sex on their wedding night. There were also some other kind of rules at that time. So after intercourse, a man couldn't attend church until he bathed. I mean, not a bad rule. After childbirth, a woman could not attend church for 40 days. And then church laws at that time during the Middle Ages also said that intercourse could only occur on certain days, essentially. Although it sounds like there were a lot of negative aspects to the Middle Ages, There was also a very interesting aspect of courtly love that arose during this time period. This narrative of the idea of pure love and temptation arose, the idea that A woman and a man can so greatly love each other, but sex will taint it. This arose during the Middle Ages, and that really is focused on that idea as abstinence as the greatest virtue within Christianity. If abstinence is the greatest virtue, then your ideal relationship essentially would have no sex because you wouldn't be tainting that relationship. This idea was interesting at the time because it sort of contrasted with the patriarchal notion that women were inferior because... Within this specific type of courtly love, where they were talking about it or where they wrote about it in books, the woman was almost put on a pedestal by a man and should be cherished by the man, but only if they were able to maintain that relationship with abstinence. Following the Middle Ages, we saw the Renaissance, and this is a really interesting time period because we saw a really renewed focus on classical ideas and values, and a reduced focus on religion again. Unlike the Middle Ages where the church really started to have power, this is where we saw that power start to decrease for a bit. We saw books, poetry, and art emerge as cultural focuses. Um, and artists became a real hero of that time period. Painters and writers of that time period are looked on culturally as the important people. We also saw that publicly displayed, we would see love and sex at this time period. So during the Renaissance, there was no stigma associated with sexuality, and it began to reemerge as an activity to be enjoyed. And again, we see as this sort of openness develops, that homosexuality again becomes openly practiced. We also saw that sex work was prevalent during this time period, which unfortunately actually led to a widespread outbreak of syphilis at that time, but there was this shift culturally where unmarried parents were more generally accepted than they had been in previous time periods. Although these values were shifting within the culture, Christianity still remained the dominant religion, but the ideals of marriage were not necessarily uh, focused within Christianity like they had been to that point. We also saw some really interesting church activities in terms of the church was involved with creating brothels at this time because they thought that this would allow the sex workers to serve God and would prevent lust, essentially, from uh, harming their lives in other ways. So they, they thought that this would be helpful or beneficial use of what they were doing and they also thought that this would allow the customers to see the errors of their ways. I mentioned the syphilis outbreak because following the Renaissance period we we see the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation The vast kind of sexual liberation and freedom of the Renaissance, of course, came by a strong reaction by the church and society. So again, we see this backswing between openness and having a restriction on sexuality and those sorts of activities. During the time of Reformation and Counter-Reformation, there was essentially a splitting of the church due to internal conflict. The Roman Catholic Church really believed that uh, celibacy was ideal and overt sexuality was sinful. It used really harsh methods such as deportation, um, excommunication, execution, when individuals would essentially act outside of those bounds. And then you saw the rising up of a uh, separate sect that ended up calling themselves Protestants, um, which thought that sex within marriage should be acceptable and didn't necessarily think that we should have the harsh outlooks for sexuality that we were taking. Following Counter-Reformation, there was a philosophical movement during the 18th century, and this was called the Enlightenment Period. The Enlightenment period was a time period in which there was increased questioning of religion as well as an increased emphasis on science. The valued frameworks for viewing the world at that time really became empiricism and rational thought, moving away from the idea of religion as the necessity for a moral framework sexuality began to be viewed as something that should not be controlled and there was a significant increase in sexual tolerance around this time period. And this is also the time period where we saw the condom developed. There was just this kind of explosion of acceptance towards sexual activities at this time and um, you could see more sexuality in literature and we saw that a growing print industry also ended up providing the medium to allow the first forms of erotica to the public. During the Enlightenment, we did also see a significant shift in family life. The marital relationship, instead of being one simply for procreation and survival, became one about both sexual and emotional pleasure. We really see the beginnings of love as a reason for marriage. It was no longer simply about economic and reproductive reasons. It was about finding someone that you were compatible with in sexual and emotional ways. Because there was more openness towards this during the time period, we also saw rates of illegitimate children rise. The best overview of the general sentiments of the Enlightenment would be freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and separation of the church and the state. This is where I'm going to bring you to where we're going to start talking about things that we are going to talk about within this podcast, and that's going to start in the 19th century. During the 19th century This is where we really see a shift in how gender is viewed. So this is where we saw roles begin for women in public and professional life. However, even though this widening of the range for women was occurring at the same time, sex work unwed mothers, same-sex relationships were being increasingly stigmatized. Women were gaining more of an ability to gain work outside of the home, but there were many situations that were still stigmatized for all individuals regarding sexuality. During the 19th century, it was really, really about repression and about puritan control this is a time period you know we think of the victorian ideals of being very emotionally frigid about sexual matters like not being willing to talk about it and uh, if we look to their theories at this time this even comes through in their theory of masturbation where they essentially said that masturbation was something that would lead to bad physical and mental outcomes for the individuals involved which is clearly not true In support of this notion that masturbation could cause poor outcomes, they actually started to uh, create anti-masturbation devices. So these essentially would be those locks that they would put on the individual's um, penis or near their vulva to make it difficult for them to have sexual activity. As we know, when repression occurs, this tends to lead to underground activity. So we saw a big rise in underground sex work and um, sexually explicit materials during this time. We see this kind of relationship where sex was publicly abhorred by everyone, but it was privately indulged in, and we saw, you know, a lot of people utilizing those services. Marital sex was more accepted during this time period, and women were becoming active participants. During the 19th century we would say this is the first time that mutual pleasure really became the norm for sexual relationships. This brings me to the modernization of sex. You know I've hit you with a whole bunch of historical information today and sometimes that seems really boring but for me I like to lay that foundation because the themes that you've been seeing arise um, in these different time periods are themes that we're going to continue to see even during now. Whether it's that struggle for sexual repression, you know, or a struggle for s- sexual freedom, right? We have these aspects that are still ongoing today. So the turn of the 20th century involved quite a societal reaction to this puritanical control and repression. and it almost forced a period of sexual modernism. It forced us into a time period where we started to view sex as a positive aspect of humanity um, or could be a positive aspect of humanity if dealt with properly, than a threat to morality. We continue to see more support for divorce, premarital sex, multiple partners, birth control and dating. And during World War I, many women uh, attained new jobs when men were away at the war. The reaction to those Victorian ideals was this idea of sexual modernism in the early 20th century. And that's really where we saw views towards sex really change. During the early 20th century, there really was more support starting for divorce, for premarital sex, for having multiple partners, um, for birth control, for dating, and, and knowing somebody before you married them. A big part of this, likely, too, was that during World War I, many women attained new jobs while the men were away at work. When that ended, women saw that they could have a role in society. They essentially put this out when we saw in the Roaring Twenties, where there was this, this transformation of women in society. And we saw the rise of the flapper. So, you know, those are those images of the women who smoked and drank and danced and voted. You know, they began cutting their hair and wearing makeup and would dress in, and would dress in flashier clothes. The early 20s really saw this sense of rebelling to the status of women in particular, and through the 1940s we did see kind of continued change to more liberalized views of sex. This continues on today in the sense that sex is really no longer viewed as something that is solely for reproductive purposes. There are some people who ascribe to religions that may um, kind of incorporate that, but it's not necessarily huge parts of it. The growth of feminism during the Second World War again continued to change the role of women and affected their roles within society. If we kind of take a moment to spin out of that and talk about um, sexuality research within the context of the modernization of sex, we saw that near the end of that Victorian period in the late 1800s, Freud started to create the first research that introduced the theory about child sexual abuse he termed this the seduction theory of childhood sexuality and within this theory he suggested essentially that adult hysteria came about because of experiences with childhood sexual abuse and then later reimagined fantasies of abuse even though it was the late 1800s this theory was not well received at this time later on in his career in about 1905 he did publish three additional theories on the theory of sexuality where he talked about um, sexual deviations Um, sexuality among children and then sexuality in puberty as well but Freud was really one of the first researchers that started talking about sexuality um, and in particular in childhood. Interestingly to note something that still continues on today even though it was a new area of research at that time Freud was considered a bit of a pervert for his research but following this early work he did go on to develop his very big theories on psychosexual development and that work with the id and the ego and the superego which I imagine many of you have at least heard of. There were other researchers studying sexuality at that time. So we had individuals like Adolf Patz that was studying sexual drive among children. Um, Henry Maudsley looked at sexual behavior in infants, and then we saw also the book Psychopathia Sexualis come out by Richard von Kraft-Ebbing. He's probably a bit more well-known for publishing that book, and it was also one of the earliest works that um, looked at homosexuality as a mental illness, which ended up being within our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, for many years to come. These few researchers looked at sexuality, really, until about the mid-1900s, and that's when it started to receive a lot more attention. This is when we saw Alfred Kinsey make the first large-scale attempt to describe sexuality among humans, and this culminated in two books that he authored known as the Kinsey Reports. This information essentially was collected uh, through interviews with Americans of different ages and backgrounds, So in the late 1950s, we see a movement from just studying it hypothetically to actually looking at physiological data with the um, introduction of the researchers Masters and Johnson. When they came on the scene, they ended up looking at the human sexual response data in both men and women and started to articulate how the female sexual arousal and orgasm worked, which is really not something that had been focused on prior to this engagement with them in research. Initially, Masters and Johnsons used sex workers within their study because they were knowledgeable and comfortable with sex, but then they ended up extending this out to community members and they would assign people to have sex with each other essentially as a couple. This is something that had not been previously used. Obviously ethics were not at the same level that they are in current times because Masters and Johnson also became participants of the study and had sex with one another. Things would be done a lot differently now, but the results are still, you know, relevant because they did map out the sexual response cycle. Now, in the 21st century, you know, a ton of sexuality is now being explored. We know that there are so many different facets to sexuality. There's so many facets to gender expression, to sexual expression, to sexual identity. And we're, we're really just starting to learn about a lot of these things and starting to allow people the platform to open up their experiences. There's been an increased access to reproduction options such as birth control, abortion, um, in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. We also know that we see higher rates of premarital sex, children born outside of marriages, single parent families than we had seen in previous time periods. We see a ton more advocacy for the LGBT community plus And now we see, and and definitely lately in in much more recent years, there's a lot more visibility to the idea of marriages that include swinging or polyamory and open relationships. And we also see a, a lot more of a movement towards the legalization and or decriminalization of sex work one thing we're going to talk about in this podcast um, probably on its own episodes will be the idea of pornography obviously the idea of pornography or sexually explicit material we'll talk about the differences is very everywhere these days in our in our current society so in addition to that we have to understand the role that those things might play or how they're used within relationships we also see that now in recent times that there's a lot more allowance for grey areas within sexuality. Something like BDSM, for example, was not something that was previously discussed, but since we've had the introduction of some very popular movies and books, you know, people use some language around it with more familiarity, although they may not necessarily understand it. That brings us to the end of this first episode, but I am gladly looking forward to the next. And in terms of what I am thinking about for the future, for me, I really wanted to do this podcast as a way to demystify some of these really difficult topics and also provide an avenue for people to learn, because I think that a lot of the subjects we're going to talk about are misunderstood. There's a lot of kind of myths around sexuality, around sexual violence, there's a lot of myths around criminality, those sorts of things. So the hope is to really clarify a lot of that and make clear what research does tell us occurs in these circumstances, and also make you aware of what strategies are the most successful to actually allow us to reduce and make changes to sexual violence within our society. This is an area that kind of crosses into my teaching, my research, my clinical work, and I have a lot of information and I love teaching and sharing in this area. So I thought that this podcast would be a great opportunity to really demystify. So my plan for this podcast is pretty vague at this time. I won't lie to you. I am in the time period between my residency right now and I'll be starting in September. My plan is to hopefully do a podcast every week But that will be depending on sort of time and obligations at that time period since this is a passion project for me. I do intend to go over the topics that I've all talked about and for this to be a long-term project for me. If this is a topic you're really, really stoked on, do know that I will be sort of putting long-term planning into this, but it might be a bit of a slow start. I will be going over different cases in the future, and of course, I always um, love to get feedback and interesting case information if you have it. I would love to have other psychologists on, other people in the area of this, and people with lived experience, so if you're interested in that, you can also make contact. As I said, I'm sure it's going to change a little bit as I learn about this, but I really appreciate you taking the time to learn with me and hope that you will continue to listen in the future. Thanks. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.